Can you believe that Christmas is almost upon us? I mean, how quickly has that come around again? I don't know about you, but I am so excited and really full of faith. I'm expectant that this is going to be our best Christmas ever. And we're going to be pulling out all of the stops this Christmas right here at Liverpool One Church. Because not only are we going to create two fantastic services for you to attend on Christmas weekend at both the 11am and the 6pm on Sunday the 23rd of December, but seriously, you want to make sure you plan to be with us on Friday the 21st of December for a really special night of Christmas. We want to bring together both the 11am and the 6pm and we're intentionally asking you to invite your world for an amazing night of just production, festive food, mulled wine, hot chocolate. It's going to be incredible because we believe this, and this is what we're praying for right now. We think that most of your friends and family are going to be most likely to be open to receive an invitation to come with you to church around the Christmas season. So plan to be with us you and your friends and your family on Friday the 21st of December for an incredible night of Christmas. And hey, I've even heard that there might just be snow. It's going to be brilliant. Who'd like to know a fact about Christmas? A real, true fact about Christmas. Do you know, and I have this fact before me, and it is truth, and if you don't believe me, you can go and check on Google after the service, because it's honest and true, whatever Google says is right, but do you know that every single winter time, male reindeer lose their antlers? Oh yes, they do, which just goes to show that Santa's sleigh is pulled by a team of strong, powerful, and greatly underrated females. Oh, yes, it is. We should have known that, though, shouldn't we? Only a team of women could pull a fat man around the world in one night and not get lost. Anyway, it's truth. You know, my husband says to me all the time, you just love Christmas, don't you? You just love getting the tree up so early. And I'm like, no, I get the tree up early because there is so much to do. I am knackered by Christmas. That's why we start in November putting our tree up. I mean, I'm not going on a rant this morning. Just bear with me. Just give me a few minutes to big up the girls in the house. Because I think if it wasn't for the girls, Christmas really wouldn't happen. I doubt very much there would be many men scrambling around the loft, looking for a tree, bringing it down, climbing the ladders, putting that thing up, hanging bubbles and tinsels and bells and whistles just for themselves. I think if there was not a woman present in the house, I doubt there would be garlands up the stairs and garnishes around the front door. Because I just think the girls like to embellish and make it look pretty. And then we have to think about all the presents that I needed to buy for his side of the family, then for your side of the family, and then for your own family. And once you've thought about the presents, you've then got to go and shop for them. And then you've got to pack them. And then you've got to wrap them. And then you've got to distribute them. And don't even get me started on the food. Because I'm just like, we haven't even got there yet. 
because then we have to go and think of all the food that everybody wants to eat and buy the food and get the dinner sorted. So really, Christmas is exciting, but I think sometimes the girls get a bit of a raw deal. I often think about Mary in the Christmas story. I mean, poor girl. She was like a girl after my own heart, doing life with just a load of men. Because the whole of the nativity story, right, there's men in it. You know, there's only Mary. She was with Joseph. Her boyfriend was Joseph. And he thought she was a liar and a bit of a floozy and that she'd been sleeping around and didn't believe that an angel had been to see her. And when she finally did convince him, he took her on a long journey on a donkey. The next guy she encounters is an innkeeper who just said no room and shut the door because he didn't even bother to ask his wife. Because if the innkeeper had asked his wife, his wife would have said, let's give him our bed, babe. Yes, she would. But he knew what his wife would say, so he didn't ask his wife. He just shut the door in her face. And then they're on the run from King Herod, who's just a psychopathic king trying to kill all the babies in the land. And then she has three shepherd boys turn up. And then there's three kings that turn up. And this poor girl, she's just surrounded. But I wonder what the nativity scene would look like if there were three wise women instead of three wise men. Yeah, because you know the three wise men followed the star and got there when the child was two. Did you know that? They got there when Jesus was two. You see, three wise women, we'd have asked directions because we're not proud. And we'd have arrived on time. Then we would have helped deliver the baby. And we would have cleaned out the manger and swept out the stall. And we would have brought some practical gifts like nappies and pseudocrem and a casserole. And there definitely would be peace on earth. I just thought I'd have to say that this morning. But I do love Christmas. It is one of my favorite times of the year. But Christmas Day in particular, my favorite time is when the family sits down for Christmas dinner. When Christmas dinner is is laid out, it's like everybody comes running from all different um, rooms in the house. We all gather around the table and we stop and we sit. And at the table, there is much conversation. And at the table, there is unity when we're sat around the table. And we have a rule in our house, and that is there is no portable devices allowed at the table, no mobile phones, no laptops. We don't even have a TV in our kitchen. Because when we sit down at the table, we sit down together for the purpose of family. And when the Christmas table is set, and I wish my Christmas table would look something like this, but when the Christmas table is set, it sends out a message to the family that says, it's more than just beans on toast tonight, kids. When you set the Christmas table, you're not just chucking the knives and forks in the middle and everybody grab and fend for themselves. No, but any woman in here would tell you that there is much thought and consideration that goes into how you set the table at Christmas. You will spend weeks thinking on how you're going to embellish and garnish that table so that your family and your guests that are seated at it feel valued, feel loved, and know that they are appreciated and wanted around your table. You're giving off a message that says, I've been expecting you. The scene that you set when you set the table gives off a message that says, you are welcome here. The name placed by your chair says, 
This space has been created with you in mind. And I felt reminded when I was writing this message that I, that we, together, individually and corporately, we have a place, a setting, a space created with you uniquely in mind around the king's table. We have a place. And the table, God's table, is referenced many times throughout Scripture. One scripture would tell us that he brought me to his banqueted table and set a banner over my life that is love. There are so many times throughout scripture where God invites you to come and sit at his table and just to feast with him. Psalm 23 is a, is a psalm that we all know so well, even if you're not a church goer. It is one that you will have perhaps learned to recite at school. You'll have heard it at weddings and funerals. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We know it so well. But verse 5 says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What David was saying here, David who wrote this psalm, was, Lord, in the midst of all my trouble, in the midst of all my problems, In the midst of this craziness of life that is going on around me, you have prepared a table and invited me to come and sit and feast with you. Your enemy is not necessarily a person. Your enemy is an adversary that is working against you in life. Your adversary, your enemy, it could be a mindset. It could be the way that you think and the way that you process. It could be negative thoughts. Your adversary could be a root of rejection, something that happened to you when you were small and you've never been able to get over it. Your enemy, your adversary, it could be anger issues. It could be bitterness. It could be an addiction that you can't break. It could be debt. It could be depression. It's an adversary. It's working against you. Life happens to all of us. And the struggle is real. But as Christians, we know that we don't have to figure it all out by ourselves because God has invited us to take a seat at his table when we are hungry. Because things that happen to you in life leave you hungry, hungry for some peace of mind. Hungry for someone to love me. Hungry to be understood hungry. Some of you are just hungry for some sleep. I don't know when the last time was that you can't remember the last time was that you had a good night's sleep. Hungry to be free from anxiety. Hungry for some answers in your life that you just don't seem to have any answers for. And when God invites you to sit down at his table, which I'm going to explain to you in a moment what that looks like, he says, and I'm inviting you in the midst of all of your trouble, come sit at the table with me. You see, the psalmist actually wrote, you prepare a table for me. He did not say, I will take you through a drive through in the middle of your problems. I will arrange for just eat to land on your doorstep at 2 a.m. when you cannot sleep. He did not say, I have organized meals on wheels for you in the middle of this battle or sorted out a doggy bag for you to take away. He said, I have prepared a table for you. But you see, our culture has made the table so irrelevant that we skip over verses like this because we don't see the importance of it. You see, when you're at the table, you stop 
and you sit. When you're at the table, you rest and you digest. When you're at the table, you converse and you listen. Our culture has taught us eat on the go, grab a burger in the car, keep moving in between busy schedules, don't sit down and chat with someone because there's no time for conversation. Keep going all the time. But here's the thing. Each and every time we do this, we take time out of our busy schedule in life and we come to the house of God and we sit together and we feast on the word of God together. We're coming to the Lord's table and together we eat and partake of the same meal. And when you're seated at the table, you're not alone because you're seated next to people. And in that seating next to people, we converse and we learn and we glean from each other's lives because God is the God of unity and his table is a picture of church. And when you are seated at the Lord's table, enemies are lost and friendships are forged. And so all of us have an invitation to be seated at the table that he has prepared for us. You know, over the last few weeks that Luke has been speaking from this uh, topic that we simply call Christmas Begins, there's a phrase that he's been using that has just come out time and time again. And it is not a phrase that um, we scheduled in or um, uh, planned into our messages. But, you know, sometimes when you write a message, you know what you're writing is what God wants to deliver to the church. But there are times when you actually feel like you just jump into the slipstream of something bigger that he is actually wanting to say. It's almost like he's saying, I know that you've prepared something. But this is what I really want you to articulate because I want to drive this point home. Because if the people can get a hold of this, it's going to be a game changer for their lives and a game changer for the church. And the phrase he's actually already referenced today. When you know that God has done something for you, it is time to let God do something through you. And so in the time that I have left today, I want to give you a table talk. I want to give you, uh, I want to take you through, through three very practical stages of mealtime Everything, three stages that you will go through this Christmas, whether you are the one cooking the dinner or not, you will be seated at a table. And if you're not going to be seated at a table, come and see me after service because you will have a seat at my table. But each and every one of us will partake in a Christmas meal this year. And so I want to give you three very practical points that we can draw out a spiritual principle from, three things that could give you a new perspective on how God can use you and work through you. So point number one, the food is prepared. Before we can eat, before we can sit down and participate in a meal, there has to be some preparation. You don't have to be a cook to help prepare the food, okay? My family know that every Christmas Eve, their Christmas Eve present is a potato peeler. Every single year, every one of them is given a potato peeler. And we gather the potatoes and the sprouts and the carrots and the cabbage and everything in our pans. We put a movie on in the lounge and we all sit and peel 
and chop. It is the only night of the year the boys are actually willing to help with the preparation of the food. But good, wholesome food takes time to prepare. Cooking a roast dinner is very, very different to grabbing a burger from McDonald's. And so you have to give it some thought and some consideration. And you have to plan that meal out. You have to wash and chop and prep and peel and cut and boil and roast before you even get round to sitting at the table. And I began to wonder, how different would our friendships and our relationships look if we put as much thought and consideration into what comes out of our mouths as we do to the food that is going into our mouths? Imagine the damage limitation it, that would, if we put some preparation into our conversation, wow, that came out a mouthful. Imagine the damage limitation if we put some preparation into our conversation. In other words, if we gave some thought to what we were going to say rather than just allowing the words to fly out of our mouths. Rather than just acting on our emotion, acting on our feeling, rather than just saying what we think in the heat of the moment and giving my opinion and giving my thoughts, what if we actually put some thought and consideration into the words that we're going to speak? When was the last time you used your mouth to compliment someone, to edify someone, to build them up? to speak words of edification, words of wisdom and words of love into their mouth, not for no personal gain of your own, but simply because you say, I've been thinking about you this week and because I've been thinking about you, this is what I thought I want to say. I will never send a Christmas card that says, Happy Christmas, Luke and Emma. I am a bit of a writer but it's just the one time I'd rather not send you a card rather than send you a card with just that in it. I want to put some thought into what I am saying. Uh, How many times as a child did you hear a parent or a teacher say to you, think before you speak? How many times have you heard those words? Because here's the thing, it's like words can be offensive and words can be destructive if they're not said at the right time, in the right way, with the right intention. It's when you speak out of your emotion, it's the picture of it, it's a little bit like this. Okay, imagine being invited around to a friend's house for a meal. And when you get there, the table is laid out beautifully. It looks lush. The best china is out, the best glasses are out on the table, they've got the candles lit, the, the, the linen napkins all folded in place, and there is a setting by a chair with your name on it. You'd be like, wow, they are expecting me. But then imagine your surprise if you found your host rummaging through her cupboards looking for something to feed you. And she pulled out a tin of spaghetti, followed by a tin of garden peas, followed by a packet of custard dated 2011. And then she said, go ahead, take a seat. Dinner won't be long. You'd be thinking, actually, you haven't prepared anything for me. You just want to empty your cupboards and dish up a pile of food that isn't even palatable to me. 
Well, you know, it's the same with our words. When our words are random, they can do a lot of damage. And when our words are random, they can actually be very distasteful. And do you know that some of our relationships and some of our friendships, they are like this picture. We invite people into our friendship circles and then we dish them up a load of dross in our conversation. We dish them up in a non-edifying way with a little bit of gossip over here and a slight comment over here and I'm just going to give you my opinion, not that you've even asked for it, but I'm going to serve it up to you anyway. Can I tell you, if you've got a friend like that in your world, you need to tell them the food you're serving me is off. If we're going to be friends, if we're going to be friends, then we're going to feed each other in a healthy way. If we're going to be friends, then the food that I feed you is going to be nourishing and satisfying to your body. And if you're not going to feed me like that in return, then I ain't going to sit at your table. If God's going to do something through you, then he needs people who have a mouth that is prepared to speak well. He needs to use a mouth that is prepared to speak love and a mouth that is prepared to speak wisdom and a mouth that is prepared to speak kindness and a tongue that, 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 that gives off wisdom. God wants people who are people of reconciliation. He wants to be able to use your mouth. And the second thing that happens when, when we come for, for our dinner is, the second thing that happens after the meal has been prepared, we are all seated at the table together. When the food is ready, the family gathers. And several years ago, we got a new cooker in our house, and um, it really did doors look like something from a different planet. And I'm not one for reading instructions, and I still have never figured the thing out. And I kid you not, it burnt everything black. No matter how much I tried to turn the temperature down and try to lessen the cooking time, and oh, it just burnt everything. And um, everybody knew dinner was ready when the smoke alarm went off. Because just in the hall outside the kitchen is the smoke alarm, and our, floor, our house is over three floors. And every time the smoke alarm went off, they would just all come running because they knew it's about to be dished up on the, t- the table. I th- actually think, I mean, it cremates everything this oven and I I still have not mastered it I actually think it's an upgraded model from the crematorium that they've just remodeled as a cooker because everything is literally incinerated but what I love most about coming to the table together is that when we sit down we are all equal our differences matter not when we come to the table whether you're tall or whether you're short when you're seated you are at face-to-face with the person opposite you. We are all equal, whether you are young or old or male or female, it matters not. Whether you are weak, whether you are strong, it matters not. Whether you are educated or uneducated, uneducated, employed or unemployed, it does not matter when we were seated at the table what your background is or what my background is. It matters not because when we are seated at the table, we are all going to participate of the same food. And the food that nourishes and sustains me is going to be the same food that nourishes and sustains you. So we are united by the food that we eat when we sit around the table. There was a story in Second Samuel about a guy called Mephibosheth. And his story is... Um, it's extremely sad. This kid, he, he starts off in the palace. He was born into royalty. He was in line to one day be king. 
that his, um, his grandfather was King Saul and his father was Jonathan. And one day out in battle, both his grandfather and his father were killed. That then meant that their kingdom was going to be overthrown and anyone associated with that family was going to be killed. And in sheer panic, Mephibosheth's nurse picked him up. He was about five years old and she picked him up and she fled from the palace. And in doing so, she tripped and dropped the baby And Mephibosheth, both of his legs were broken, and he remained a cripple for the rest of his life. He could never walk again. And um, what happens is, um, David, a few years later, David ascends and becomes king over Israel. And David remembers his relationship with Jonathan, and he starts to scour the nation for any relatives from King Saul. He says, I want to show them the kindness and the goodness of God. But no one could find any relatives because they'd all been killed. Every one of the house of Saul had been annihilated. And so they couldn't find anyone. And then a servant speaks up and he says, hey, David, I've heard about this guy. His name is Mephibosheth. He's living in a place called Lodabar. And he's a cripple in both of his legs. But I believe he's a grandson of King Saul. Lodabar is where Mephibosheth was living. Nobody chose to live in Lodabar. Lodabar was the slums. Lodabar was dirt and poverty. If you ended up in Lodabar, it was not by choice, it was by default, because you could not, for whatever reason, earn a wage, earn a living to sustain yourself. So he's living in the slums through no fault of his own. This is just where life found him. And I believe that there are many of us that can identify with that story today. Through no fault of my own, this is where life finds me. Through no fault of my own, it's just the the hand that life has dealt me. And I am in this mess. I didn't ask to be born into this family. I just was. I didn't want to go through a divorce. It wasn't my choice, but he just walked out and left me. I never wanted to be abused. It was never part of my life's plan. It was just something that happened to me. The parent that left me, the rejection and the hurt, my life sucks and it's not my fault. It's just the hand that life has dealt me. This was Mephibosheth. This guy was born as a prince in the palace and now he's in poverty living in the slums as a pauper. And one day, David, the king of Israel, sends for him. Just one ordinary day in Mephibosheth's life, when he thinks it couldn't get any worse, the king sends for him. I think Mephibosheth thought that he was going to be killed by the king. Let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel 9, verse 7. It says, he bows to the ground, he being Mephibosheth. He bows to the ground. Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. (laughs) The king wants to restore Mephibosheth, reaffirm him, build him up, encourage him. The king was saying here, Mephibosheth, life has been cruel to you. And it was not your fault. What happened to you 
was not your fault. Your circumstances are through nothing you have done. And I, the king, have the authority to restore to your life the years that have been stolen and taken from you. And not only that, from now on, you shall have a seat at my table and you will eat the food of a king. In verse 8, shuffling and stammering and not looking him in the eye. Mephibosheth said, who am I that you would pay attention to a stray dog like me? This man thought so little of himself, he actually called himself a stray dog. He began to give the king all the excuses that we still give the king today. All the excuses that Luke has spoken about over the last two weeks. I'm unqualified. I'm a no one. I'm disqualified. I am a mess. But the king led Mephibosheth to his banqueting table and sat him down. And the thing that I love most about the picture of this story is when Mephibosheth sat at the table, he was the same as everybody else. In the hallway, Mephibosheth crawled low on his belly in humility and embarrassment before the king. But at the table, he was face to face with the king. And the king said, eat. You know what else I love about this story? Is when Mephibosheth sat down, the table covered his disability. When Mephibosheth sat, the table covered the thing that had crippled him and held him back in life. And I just want to give you a word of encouragement this morning because this is so, such a picture of church. It's a picture of God's restoration because when you sit in the presence of the king at the king's table, whatever your past was, whatever the disability and the dysfunction was in your life, it is completely overlooked. If there's a place for you, if the king has put aside a place with your name on it, then there's a place here for you. Whatever went on, he wants to restore your dignity. He wants to restore your honor. At that table, Mephibosheth was the same as everybody else. Nobody focused on the dysfunction and the disability in his life. And you know what? God is looking for a church that doesn't just have a quirky quote on the wall in the foyer that says about everyone. Sometimes, let me have a real moment. Some of the conversations I have take me by surprise because I feel like people want me to put a hit list by the quote about everyone except no 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 no. let me just say if we're going to be a church that has a statement like that on our foyer wall then we're going to be the church that lives it out because our God is looking for a place to bring people out of their load of bars and he's looking for a place where he can bring people where they are not going to be judged where they are not going to be criticized where we are not going to look at their dysfunction and disability but we're going to say hey you sit at the table next to me and what feeds me is going to feed you and what sustains me is going to sustain you too God is looking for a place to bring people in where they are not judged and where they are not criticized and where we do not look at each other's differences. The third thing that happens at the table is the clearing up process. The bit my family love, the clearing up. There is a rule at my table and the rule is this. You don't just take your own dishes to the dishwasher. You have a look around and you see who else is finished and you take everybody else's dishes as well. In other words, you don't just clean up your own mess, but you clean up the mess of other people as well. 
And so often in life, we can become so wrapped up in our own needs and our own wants and our own situations that we've got going on and we're praying prayers about my life and getting me through to the day and what's wrong with my day, that we, 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 with that inward looking that we, we stop looking out and looking up. And in our life's path, God has put other people there who are going to need your help. And you've got to lift your eyes and see that there's more than just you. But even in the midst of my pain and even in the midst of my problem, who else can I help? In Luke 10, Jesus told the story. We best know it as the story of the Good Samaritan. Let me read it to you. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on the way he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, they beat him up, and they went off and left him half for dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road. But when he saw him, the man on the road, he angled himself across to the other side. Then the Levite, another religious man, showed up. He also avoided the injured man. Then a Samaritan traveling down the road came to him. And when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him. He gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds. And then he lifted him onto his donkey and led him to an inn and made him more comfortable. Two other men, religious people, saw this man lying in a gutter on the road and chose to ignore him. They crossed over and they avoided him. I don't know why they did that. Maybe they just had an extremely busy schedule that day. Maybe they just had important meetings to get to, people to see and places to be. I don't know the reason for them ignoring them, but this one thing I do know, they did not stop because to stop and help him was an inconvenience to them. They had plans, they had agendas, they had work to be done. They didn't get out of bed that day expecting to see a man who'd been stripped, robbed and left half dead in the street. But because they had their own stuff going on in their mind, they walked past the man and perhaps they thought to himself, someone else will clean up that mess. Someone else will step in and help this man out. Me, I've got too much going on right now. My family rule extends to so much more than just the table. We do need to be a people that look beyond our own needs. We do need to be a people that have a look as we're walking out through this path of life. Who is there that I could help? You see, heartache, pain, disappointment, problem, they're nothing that we schedule in to our plans. We don't schedule in a bad day. We schedule in the holiday and the work and the family highlights, but we don't schedule in to come up against issues and difficulties, tragedies and pain. The other thing that we don't schedule in is taking time to invest into somebody else. Can I just tell you, There is never enough hours in the day to go and visit sick people. There is never the right amount of time to have a two-hour phone call with a friend who's in a desperate need. There's never enough time in the day to sit with the woman whose husband's just walked out and left her to go and look for someone's kids who've gone missing on the street. 
We've all got things going on. We've all got plans and we've all got agendas and there just never is enough time to get involved with somebody else's mess. It's never a good time to spend time with the guy who's battling an addiction because we all live life by the clock. But let me just say this. If God has done something for you, inevitably, it will have involved people. If God has ever stepped into your life and helped you in one way or another, inevitably, there was another person involved. Someone came alongside you. Someone prayed for you. Someone texted you an encouraging text. Somebody put their arm around you. Somebody spoke words of encouragement into your life. Somebody stayed up late at night. Somebody drove out of their way to bring you to church. Somebody saved you a seat. Somebody cooked you a meal. Somebody sat in the hospital with you. And although you did not know it at the time, you were an inconvenience to them. But they did it anyway. Because they know that if God is going to help people, He needs people to help the people. Because that's what life is all about. Life is not about earning the next big book and going on the next dream vacation and having the next new outfit. Life is about people. It's where the heart of God is. If God's going to use you, then you better get used to being inconvenienced. If God's going to use you, You've got to have eyes that are bigger than just yourself. Church, stand with me this morning.